You know you've got a comeback in you. When you take the next step, you're going to make it count. For your career, for your family, for your life. You can earn a degree you're proud of with Purdue Global. Purdue Global is backed by Purdue University, one of the nation's most respected and innovative public universities. This is your chance. This is your opportunity. This is your comeback. Purdue Global, Purdue's online university for working adults. Start your comeback today at purdueglobal.edu. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts, if you dare. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. 10 more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. You know that feeling when you walk into your home, take a deep breath, and feel new? Well, that's what it's like to use Clorox Sentiva. Because Clorox Sentiva smells like coconut, cleans like Clorox, and feels like energy. It'll elevate any cleaning routine to not just clean, but also make every room smell like a tropical coconut getaway. Discover how Clorox Sentiva's powerful clean and refreshing scents can transform your space. Get yours in coconut or other fabulous scents at a nearby retail store. There's a lot happening these days. But I have just the thing to get you up to speed on what matters, without taking too much of your time. The 7 from the Washington Post is a podcast that gives you the 7 most important and interesting stories, and we always try to save room for something fun. You get it all in about 7 minutes or less. I'm Hannah Jewell. I'll get you caught up with The 7 every weekday. So follow The 7 right now. Welcome to How to Citizen with Baratunde, a podcast that reimagines citizen as a verb, not a legal status. This season is all about tech and how it can bring us together instead of tearing us apart. We're bringing you the people using technology for so much more than revenue and user growth. They're using it to help us citizen. It's October 2013, and a group of 30 or so revolutionaries in Buenos Aires, Argentina, are poised to infiltrate a seemingly impenetrable fortress, the government. And as they approach the Palace of the Argentine National Congress, they tow with them the symbol of their movement, a 20-foot-tall, wooden Trojan horse. Yeah, a Trojan horse, like from Greek mythology. And if you need a little refresher on that story, it goes like this. During the Trojan War, the Greeks built this giant Trojan horse as a gift to the Trojans. Little did the Trojans know that the Greek warriors were actually hiding inside the horse. When the coast was clear, the Greeks emerged and totally sacked the city. Now, these Argentine citizens, they've got the same plan. To sneak into Congress and disturb the political order 
from the inside. They are Partido de la Red, or in English, the Net Party, as in the internet. They're a new political party in Argentina tackling one of democracy's biggest problems. Our democracy has remained the same for the past 200 years. We are 21st century citizens interacting with 19th century institutions. Today, we can speak for ourselves in almost every aspect of life, but we can only tell our governments what we want once every few years. And in between elections, we must remain silent. Partido de la Red is running for seats in Congress, and they have a very different platform. They created an app called Democracy OS, where citizens could cast their own votes on legislation. If elected, the Partido de la Red representative would vote according to how citizens have voted on the app. The candidates are themselves the Trojan horse. If they get into Congress, they would sneak every voice on Democracy OS into Congress with them. Citizens wouldn't have to wait for years to speak. They'd have a say on every piece of legislation. As the party pulls this Trojan horse through the streets, children run alongside the procession. An excited crowd gathers when it comes to a stop at the doors of Congress. The party chants. Woo! It was very powerful. In the crowd is Pia Mancini, one of the leaders of Partido de la Red. It's hard to make change happen, but we must move from protest to construction. Her work that October would be just the beginning of a lifelong pursuit to empower citizen voices. Since then, Pia has put her imagination to work building technologies that help people organize around the causes that matter to them. And now, eight years later, she isn't just trying to rewire broken systems from the inside. She's making whole new systems entirely. Pia has developed this platform called Open Collective. And with it, she's putting economic power in the hands of communities all across the globe. So how does somebody go from protesting at Congress's doorstep to building a new economic infrastructure? And whatever happened to Partido de la Red? Pia Mancini tells us her story after the break. Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news. Sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of spoken audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. 
the ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. The 2024 presidential campaign features two candidates who are very well-known to Americans. And yet, there's complexity at every turn. Criminal trials for one of those candidates. Young voters who are angry. The Campaign Moment podcast from The Washington Post gives you what matters. I'm Aaron Blake, and I'm covering my 10th election cycle. My colleagues and I have insights that you won't find anywhere else. So follow the Campaign Moment right now, wherever you're listening. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Hello. Hello, my friend. <laughs> so nice to see you. It's so nice to see you too, Pia. Welcome. Thank you. So let's start uh, with the basics. Can you introduce yourself and what you do? I'm Pia Mancini, and I'm co-founder and CEO of Open Collective. And I am the mother of an almost six-year-old who studied elementary yesterday, so it's very exciting. Are you excited about the school? I am excited about school. <laughs> <laughs> the the amount of like relief and exhaustion in your voice, I believe you a hundred percent. Exactly. What what is Open Collective? Open Collective at the core is an open finances, a transparent finances platform that lets you fundraise and spend money for your community in full transparency. And we pair that with a global network of legal entities that what they do is they hold the money for those communities and they deal with reporting and taxes and government. So communities can focus on what they do and not focus on talking to accountants and lawyers. You say this is for communities. Who is Open Collective for more practically? Can you get specific? Yeah, so we are mostly working with two large ecosystems, the open source ecosystem and the solidarity economy. So we are helping both open source projects across the world to fundraise. Like as in open source software projects? Yeah, absolutely. So open source communities, open source software projects are in general uh, folks around the world who are coming together using a platform like GitHub, for example, mm. to create software. Companies and users want to support these open source projects. They want to give them funding so the maintainers can keep working on them because, you know, otherwise it's volunteer time. But they don't have where to send the money. So imagine Google trying to send $5,000 to a PayPal account in Ukraine. <laughs> that will get flagged real quick. Real quick. <laughs> yeah. So it's easier for Google to send funding to the Open Source Collective, which is one of the non-for-profits we created. We have a network of 300 non-for-profits around the world. And we give fiscal sponsorship and um, you know an umbrella organization to the open source projects. We currently have 3,000 projects. 3,000 open source projects. Yeah. and Yeah. Okay. Yeah. This is an, a, a good moment for me to... Just establish in your definition in terms, what is open source? Mm. Yeah, so open source essentially is software where you can see how it's being made, all the lines that constitute its code, and you can copy and use in whichever way you want. You can grab a part of it, you can rehash it. It's like a mashup. This is different from what it's called proprietary software. That is software that is locked by the developer, right? So uh, Microsoft makes proprietary software because they don't want anyone to compete, to use their technology and compete. So proprietary software is almost like having a patent on your technology. And open source is just free, open technology for anyone to use. Open source enabled the startup revolution. Mm. So you mentioned open source projects. What's the other type of community that you're supporting? 
Yeah, the solidarity economy. Totally up your alley. Look, it's um, mutual aid groups, land trusts, giving circles, social movements, right? COVID hit. A lot of people pulled money together to support each other. They wanted to support their neighbors, buy food for those who couldn't make it. All of those mutual aid groups, groups that are coming together to support each other. Where Who's going to receive the money? Are we... You know, it's a group of neighbors who's going to put their own personal bank account. It's kind of weird, right? It's awkward. And it's also, it might have implications for your tax reporting. And so we give these communities the open collective platform plus a 501c3 kind of as a service. Wow. Yeah. So they can be up and running, receiving money without tax deductible receipt for their donors in like a day. So we are kind of radical administrators, right? We kind of... (laughs) (laughs) Which usually doesn't go together. Radical and administrative are very rarely said. I know, (laughs) I know. We abstract the difficulty, the awful, boring bits of having to raise and manage money because we think it's very unfair that if you want to just pull money together or if you just want to try an idea or if you don't know yet what you want to be in the world, maybe you want to be a co-op. Maybe you want to be a non-for-profit. Maybe you're just testing an idea. Why should you pay up front the costs of having um, equity or having hierarchical structures that then it's very difficult to transition out of? Like, why? Why are we doing this? And so the kind of metaphor that we use, we say that communities are circles in a world that is made for triangles. Communities are circles in a world made for triangles. Yeah. So we kind of need to, you know, twist a little bit so we can fit into what the system understands is a legal entity. Here's the question, though. Why open? What's the open part all about? Everything is transparent by design. So you know at a glance who gave money to a community and how that community is spending the money. Philosophically, I don't think that transparency generates trust per se, because, you know, because if everything is transparent, what's there to trust, right? You just see it, right? Like trust kind of gets generated when you accept that someone is doing something without you having to see that necessarily. But transparency helps a lot in situations where trust takes a lot of time to build. Give me an example of of a collective that has benefited from this open, transparent funding, legal, administrative support? One of the first collectives that really showed the quick impact that we could have was called Meals of Gratitude. Meals of Gratitude, okay. Late February or March last year, so very, very early on, they realized that they needed to feed first responders in the pandemic. And so they were like, ah, scrambling to you know, figure out how to buy all of these meals for folks working round the clock in hospitals. And it went from zero to a gazillion in like three days. Suddenly we were like pushing, I don't know how many thousand meals a day. And I'm like, I'm so grateful that we're able to do this. Yeah. Another one more recent is we were able to get to families of open source developers from Afghanistan, out of Afghanistan, So open source is not something the Taliban understand. (laughs) You didn't see that coming. (laughs) I just, open source is not something the Taliban understand. I mean, that's that's beautiful. Continue. (laughs) So, but I mean, it's very risky for developers working in open source because they're collaborating with, you know, foreign powers or whatever the narrative is. Yeah. And it could be the CIA. Exactly. They're just doing code on something in English, and this is like terrifying. Right. And so we needed to very quickly uh, raise money to get these two families out. And um, we spun up a collective, and in nothing we had, you know, raised enough money to get both families off to Pakistan. Wow. It sounds very disruptive, Pia. Look, I have to say that it's, it, it is. It's, um, it's been amazing, especially for me, like last year, 2020, personally, to see all of these different groups just coming together. And we were able to deploy millions of dollars (laughs) to communities across the United States and across the world because we were like already set up for this. And the growth last year has been surprising. 
our goal right now is like finding ways of moving money from the center to the fringes. Mm-hmm. I think it's absolutely unfair that only corporations, whether they're for profit or non-profit, but corporations are incorporated in a territory. Today, 21st century, you need to be in a territory, which is insane. They have hierarchical structures or, or vertical structures. Triangles. Triangles. Mm-hmm. Only triangles can receive money. That's unfair because the hard work that communities are doing to improve the state of the world, it's incredible. We have more and more open source projects that are employing or contracting their maintainers full term. And so we are creating jobs. This is putting the community as a new economic unit, the community as a human, you know, an economic unit that is able to hire, to raise money, to spend to do everything that we give for granted that corporations can do without having to become something that they're not. Where did all this come from, Pia? How did you come up with this idea for Open Collective? (laughs) Um, So it wasn't my own idea. Probably a collective. There you go. You get it, you get it. (laughs) My co-founder, Xavier and me, both had experience where we went through this particular pain of needing to pull money to do what we wanted to do and not being able to do it because of bureaucratic hurdles. We are coming from very different contexts. Like my experience was in politics. His experience was in the startup movement in Belgium, mine in Argentina. And we're like, if the two of us are going through the same, there must be other people going through this. And so we started thinking about how to solve this problem. And Open Collective was born in 2016. How did you get into politics in the first place? Goodness. My family was always very, let's say, argumentative. <laughs> <laughs> I can't see that at all. What is, what, how did that show up? Was that at the dinner table? Was that on the way to school? What, did, what does it mean? Oh my God, the dinner table. The dinner table and then arguments in the morning for who got to read the newspaper first and what section of the newspaper and then, you know, arguing about what we were reading. And um, my dad and I, we were very similar in a lot of ways. And then we thought politically very differently. So, Mm. you know, and so I grew up in an environment where politics was very much part of our lives. And I studied political science because I was interested in power dynamics. And I was interested in, like, maybe because of my father. I hadn't <laughs> thought about that. Hang on a second. <laughs> it's okay. If you want to lay back on a couch, take some deep oh breaths, we can, we can go there, Pia. Breakthrough <laughs> happening. And um, and then there was a bit of a, of a moment where something kind of clicked. I was campaign managing for a friend of mine who then became mayor of this kind of quite large city outside of Buenos Aires. And I don't know, this was maybe 2010, something like that. July, which is winter in Argentina, and it gets pretty cold. And so we were visiting a neighborhood, talking to folks, and we went into this barn and it was stuck up to the ceiling with mattresses and construction materials and things like that. And I'm like, great, are we going to build things or housing for folks in need here in the area? What's the plan? How are you doing this? I was so excited. He looks at me like, literally, like if I was from another planet, he looks at me, he's like, are you crazy? Yeah, elections are next year. These are staying here. And I'm like, wait, what? Are we keeping this until elections? Oh. Because that's what we used to get votes. And then it just clicked. And it wasn't that my friend was corrupt. It was just that the system is what it is. And I'm like, what am I doing here trying to get someone elected to be mayor of a city where this is going to still happen because the system is not going to change. It's just going to eat him up and chew him out when they're done. And so at the same time, I ran into this absolutely crazy bunch of people doing a different type of political party called the Net Party, Al Partido de la Red. Mm. So that's how I got more into politics. <laughs> Partida de la Red. Partida de la Red, yes. And how was that approach different from everything you just described as not ideal? So El Partido de la Red was a hack, essentially. Hmm. We wanted to influence the way decisions are made in politics. And so we created Democracy OS. 
Hold up. Wait a minute. Okay. <laughs> I'm walking this path with you. And I'm like, okay, frustrated at the political system. Got it. Join a new political party. Got it. So then we started Democracy OS. So <laughs> okay. what is this democracy operating system? <laughs> yeah, so please explain. Okay, got it. So Democracy OS is a platform for citizens to read on legislation that was translated from a political and legal jargon that no one understands, you know, because that's that's the hack of the lawyers. You make a human readable version of legislation. Yes, you got it. And so, um, so we did that. And then it was a platform for citizens to vote how they would like their representatives to vote, mm. right? And if they thought they couldn't vote themselves on something because they didn't have time, they didn't want, they didn't understand, you know, they knew someone else who might know better, whatever, they could delegate that vote on this other person, right? So if there's a healthcare piece of legislation and, you know, folks that work in the healthcare system, but they will never access the lobby power to influence legislation because they are healthcare workers. But you trust them. You know that you would like them to vote for you. So you could delegate your vote on them. And that makes sense. I mean, there are people who I use right now informally, right? You know a lot more about this. Tell me how I should vote, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So there's a technology that helps citizens weigh in and even delegate their authority on certain topics based on expertise in, in their networks. Yeah, that's, that's, that's exactly right. And so we created this and we were like, it'd be great if government, you know, Congress used this. And so we, we were like, hey, Congress, do you want this? And they were like, no, thank you. Go play outside. <laughs> surprise, surprise. <laughs> exactly. And they're like... That's the door, you know. And we're like, okay, great. So how on earth do we become valid stakeholders in this conversation? How on earth do we get them to pay attention? And so we're like, okay, let's do what they do. Let's build a political party. But we ran for elections with this idea that if we got a seat in Congress, we would only vote according to the decision made on Democracy OS. Whoa. Ah, so that was a hack. Stakes are high. I mean, I've heard of campaign promises, but that's a different level of commitment. Yeah. For the political establishment in the, you know, Buenos Aires, it was like, wait, what? You're going to do what? And did you end up getting a seat? No. We missed that seat for not a lot. Um, it was very close. We pushed the bar so far of what was perceived as doable. You know, we almost made it. And we were like a crazy bunch of folks with a software saying like, we're not going to vote what we think. We're going to vote what people decide on this platform. And then it was after the campaign, I think, one of the volunteers, the developers working on the Democracy OS platform sent us a link saying like, have you folks seen this? It was Democracy OS translated to French, used in Arabic to discuss the constitution in Tunisia. And we had no idea what was going on. The developers there looked for online voting. They ran into Democracy OS. They did their own copy of Democracy OS and they were using it themselves to discuss the Tunisian constitution. That for me was like mind-blowing. It felt like there was an emergent need because if something was being used at the same time in Buenos Aires and in Tunisia for the same purposes, the world needed this and the world was ready to use this. And I became kind of focused on using Democracy OS in different contexts. So we use it for in Mexico, in the city of Mexico for the constitution, in the Senate of Mexico for like a piece of legislation in Sri Lanka with a candidate, in Colombia for the referendum. The tools that we were putting out there were being picked up by the same type of groups in different languages, different purposes, different places. At one point, Democracy was translated into 30 different languages, and we didn't do that. And so I think that that's what really pulls me from open source and technologies, this ability of creating tools that you don't control. 
and that you just release into the world and people use, for me, is it's beautiful. We'll be right back. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. <clears throat> AT&T connects an ode to podcasts. Connect the alarm. Change the podcast you stream. Connect the snooze. Ten more minutes to dream. Connect the shower. Lather up with the news, sports talk, comedians, or movie reviews. Connect with that three-hour philosophy show. Change the drive into work in traffic so slow. Connect the dishes to voices that glow. Thank you to the geniuses of smoking audio. Connect the stories. Change your perspective. Connecting changes everything. AT&T. Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox, but a feeling like <sighs> being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb, tuning out all the constant... Just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva. Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store. The best conversations I have with my colleagues are the ones that happen when no one is looking. When we're not 100% sure yet what to write. Hopefully, having conversations like this can help you figure out your own point of view. That's kind of our job as Washington Post opinions columnists. I'm Charles Lane, Deputy Opinion Editor. And I'm Amanda Ripley, a contributing columnist. We're going to bring you into these conversations on a new podcast called Impromptu. Follow Impromptu now, wherever you listen. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Where in your path did technology become a tool you would use for all of this systems, power, political thinking? Well, we felt that technology was the missing piece in how citizens could have agency. We felt that technology was what made evident that the system was unbelievably closed because it's not like they didn't have the tools to open up. They just didn't want to do it. They chose to hold on to the status quo because they want to stay in power. Mm. What did this experience do broadly? I mean, the experience of being rejected by the systems of power you're trying to change, the experience of finding power through the people, through technology, through community organizing. What did that experience do to your understanding of how power works? I think that we were very naive and um, we thought that you could change a system from within. We thought that if we could get there with the right tools and the right people and the right hacks, systems could be incrementally rewired until they worked better. And I guess what we missed was at the end of the day, power wants to stay in power. Right, The status quo is never going to devolve power mm. because they want to remain being the status quo. So there's all of these 
like awful ego game that happens where they are like, oh, you're so amazing. You're doing great things. Participatory democracy, come with us and blah, blah, blah. So they change a little bit for everything to remain the same. And I think we hit a wall there. We were missing how conservative power is, even if they think they're progressive or even if they say they're progressive, because it's just the system will do anything that the system can to self-perpetuate. And we didn't realize that. So if you cannot transform the current system, how do you build an alternative that is appealing enough that you crystallize it in a way that inspires people, you build bridges to bring folks over, right? What tools do you have? What sandboxes to play around with new systems can you build? Because you need to experiment. Yeah. And how do you live through that, right? Like I'm very American. It's the country I've known the most. It's the country I've been in my whole life and my m many of my ancestors going back many generations. But I, I sometimes get attached to this idea of a democratic experiment. It's a sandbox. You know, it's everything you just described. Um, so trying things, experimenting is absolutely ingrained in the DNA of the process. You know, in democracy, more of a process than an end product anyway. Yeah. You know, one of the main things when we were campaigning for the net party that we got from people was like, but what, am I going to decide? This fear that we have in us that we can't really make decisions because we don't know, you know, because only those in power know or whatever. We've spent such a long history, thousands of years, being told that we couldn't be part of this decision-making process, that we've inherited this notion that we can't participate and now we believe it. Right? We believe that we are not able to. And so we need to live through decision-making. We need to live through building new institutions. We need to experience that to learn. There's, like, there's no teaching how to decide and fail. And so what sandboxes can we build so we are able to fail in our experimentation with new forms of political institutions, new form of democratic arrangements? So a lot of my time shifted towards thinking alternative systems, right? And what alternative systems need. Um, I kind of focus very strongly on open collective because it's an alternative path of having economic power and kind of building around the territory. If you're a global network of climate activists and you don't know where you need to incorporate, we got you. It's fine. Don't worry. You don't need a territory. We'll do that for you. And so Open Collective has that kind of ingrained in it, right, of like building outside nation states. I guess one of the things that I learned is like if you can't beat them, make them obsolete. If you can't beat them, make them obsolete. Yeah, you can't beat the nation state. You cannot, right? So stop trying, build around it until it becomes obsolete build around it until it collapses, until it decays on something different. It's going to happen. It's going to evolve into something else or it's going to decay into something. But the nation states weren't always here and they're not going to be here always, right? They're a social construct. And so I'm very tired of being forced to think of the territory and the nation state as the vector that organizes power. So a lot of the work that I do has to do with how we abstract that layer out. Mm. So, so here's, an, here's another question for you. The way we practice technology and the way we practice democracy, what is that relationship historically and, and where do you see it going? It's very interesting. So technology used to be, you know, mainframes and <laughs> proprietary. And I guess it became open and collaborative and it doesn't have borders. And the internet really, really scaled that to a whole new level. And so democracy is being more in the open, democracy is being more on a global layer like the internet is, means that the planet becomes like a new jurisdiction. We all come together as peers that share a commons that is a planet, and it doesn't matter where on earth you were born, you have agency over certain decisions that impact all of us globally. So the main example of that, or the easy one, is climate change, right? Why on earth are we letting nation states have any say on climate change when they're really the ones who should decide are citizens that are coming together as a global network? Because there is no such thing as a nation for climate change. It doesn't matter. 
right? There are no borders. It's like are, are meaningless. And we now have that parallel between the internet creating this global network and these global democratic institutions that we can create on top of that. Now, ownership is not trivial here, right? As much as we try to forget about it and deny it, there are, you know, the cables and the water are controlled by someone, the internet infrastructure. So I think technology still needs to decentralize a heck of a lot more to be able to be the truly support system that a global democracy needs. Yeah. Earlier, you talked about the fear many of us have when it comes to exercising our own power. Why should I get to decide? I don't know enough. I'm not expert enough. What do you have to say to people who hear this conversation and are not excited, but are terrified? I think we've accepted this idea that we can't participate because we've never done it. And I am not saying it's going to work well every time. We're likely to make bad decisions. They can't be worse decisions than the ones the governments are making. (laughs) It's a low, low bar. But even then, I think we should start small. And I think that cities are very powerful, um, are really great grounds or sandboxes for us to learn how to citizen. I truly believe most people are decent and are good people, right? I I honestly believe that. I think the vast majority of humanity are just good people. We're mostly, you know, living in a system that benefits or elevates, you know, the not so good people. But at the end of the day, most people, I think, are good and they will do the decent thing when it comes down to it. And I've seen it happen over and over and over and over. Yeah. So I think we need to start building paths to make real decisions. And participatory budgeting is a really good like tool that we can use because it's an inexpensive way to learning how to have agency and see what happens to you. And if, you know, deciding is not your thing, we'll find someone else that can decide for you and that you trust enough. But it's your choice. It's your choice. I love that. You know, Pia, you mentioned participatory budgeting, and I know some people don't know what that is. Uh, Basically, that's process where community members decide how to spend part of a public budget, giving them power over actual money. And I know there's thousands of cities around the world including my city in L.A., that have used this to decide budgets on all kinds of things. It's really beautiful. What other types of infrastructure do you think we need? You're obviously very invested in open collective around legal, financial, administrative, you know, radical administrative. What other pieces of the puzzle are missing? I guess what we're missing is a space where we can, large number of people, like in the millions, right, like can come together from different countries from around the world and decide on something. There was a really cool project that someone was trying to fundraise for and organize that it was going to pull something like a billion dollars and they were going to try to get, I think, 300 million young people from around the world to vote on a participatory budgeting process for that billion dollars. And I think that the money and the participatory budgeting aspect was the least interesting one. The most interesting one was building a network of 300 million young people that have collaborated at scale outside a nation state. I think networks change the world. And once you have that network and it's formed, you have that global social fabric, you can build things with that. That is going to bring about so much change into the world. So we need to build this global social tissue. You're, you're ridiculous. And I mean that in the most complimentary way possible. Pia, you have given me so many more reasons to be optimistic. Thank you for pushing our thoughts to new places, thinking literally outside of our borders, threatening some powers that be, <laughs> and, uh, and being fun in the process really appreciate you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for having me and for listening.
One thing I admire so much about Pia is her courage to just try. Partido de la Red didn't win the election. And that's okay. The goal was just to try. They wanted to see how far they could go, how far they could push our perception of what's even possible. And in that attempt, they succeeded. Other folks around the world took Democracy OS and they ran with it, mashing it up for their own democratic experiments, pushing the bar even further. And they were able to do that because Pia and her friends took the first step. Even though it may not always seem like it, there's no lack of beautiful, imaginative, good-intentioned people in this world. Some might want to help their neighbors. Some might want to challenge the political establishment with their own Trojan horses, literal and metaphorical. Whatever it is that matters to you is worth trying. Pia's a powerful reminder that we can use tech to unlock more than money. We can use it to do all the things we believe citizening means. To show up and participate. To invest in relationships. I mean, that's happening beyond the boundaries of the nation-state thanks to technology. To understand power. That's what creating a new economic model is all about. And all to support the collective, an open collective. It's not too late to make a difference. We can try from within the current system, but if that fails, we can build something new. As Pia said, if you can't beat them, make them obsolete. Next week, we go to Taiwan, where a group of civic hackers succeeded in infiltrating the government, and they changed the system entirely from the inside out. We have this digital public infrastructure that functions the same as the town hall so that they're not forced to deliberate about important civic topics in the digital equivalent of nightclubs like Facebook. Next time, Audrey Tong. Pia got me so fired up. I hope she did the same for you, because it's time for some action. Let's start nice and easy with something you can all do by yourself. No special equipment necessary. I want you to think about when you feel most positive or optimistic in your week. What are you doing? Who are you around? What media are you consuming? Now work backwards from that. Do more of those things that make you feel good. I promise I'm not trying to be a life coach here. I just think the world needs more optimists for us to reach our collective potential. And it's hard to citizen when you're only cynical. Here's something else I want you to try. Visit opencollective.com. Just understand it more. I think of it as a combination of Patreon meets Kickstarter meets easy-to-use accounting software. Watch Pia's TED Talk. It's called How to Upgrade Democracy for the Internet Era and learn more about her beliefs and journey. Then think about a local project or informal group, maybe a mutual aid society, that could benefit from Open Collective and tell them about it. Finally, and then we're getting real warmed up here, I want you to consider supporting an open source project of your own while moving away from private mega malls like Facebook. Now, that doesn't mean you have to go start a software company. It just means start using something, like the Signal app, instead of Facebook. That's an open-source encrypted nonprofit messaging platform, which was initially launched by the Ford Foundation. And if you use open-source to build your product that's making you money, then give back to the open-source community. Just because it's open-source doesn't mean it's free. It was paid for by somebody's time. You know where you can find some great open-source projects to support? over at opencollective.com. Boom, full circle. Speaking of .com, we've got our own with links to all these actions and more at howtocitizen.com. Follow us on Instagram at howtocitizen. Tag us in your post about supporting a collective. Be a circle in a world dominated by triangles. How to Citizen with Baratunde is a production of iHeartRadio Podcast and Dustlight Productions. Our executive producers are 
Me, Baratunde Thurston, Elizabeth Stewart, and Misha Youssef. Our senior producer is Tamika Adams. Our producer is Allie Kiltz, and our assistant producer is Sam Paulson. Stephanie Cohn is our editor, Valentino Rivera is our senior engineer, and Matthew Lai is our apprentice. Original music by Andrew Epen, with additional music for season three by Andrew Clausen. Original composition for the Trojan Horse Story by Sam Paulson. This episode was produced and sound designed by Sam Paulson, with additional production help from Arwen Nix. Special thanks to Joelle Smith from iHeartRadio and Rachel Garcia at Dustlight Productions. Okay, now for the real question, Pia. Which uh, which crypto should I be getting into? <laughs> Ethereum. <laughs> Definitely. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought... In that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Are you looking for the perfect move-in ready home this spring season? Now's the time to buy at Fisher Homes. For a limited time only, enjoy below market interest rates starting at 5.375% APR, 6.139% APR. With these exclusive lower rates, you can save hundreds on a move-in ready home and start enjoying the benefits of home ownership even faster. Schedule your personal tour with one of our new home specialists at fisherhomes.com and make this spring the season you find your perfect home sweet home. Financing provided by Victory Mortgage, LLC, NMLS 461249, Equal Housing Lender. Whether you're a savvy spender maximizing your savings with cashback rewards, a thrifty rate watcher seeking the lowest interest, or a travel enthusiast looking for extraordinary perks, Kemba Financial Credit Union has a visa to complement your lifestyle and unique needs. Apply today at Kemba.org to unlock a limited-time 2% cashback on purchases. And pay 0% interest on balance transfers for an entire year with a new visa from Kemba. You deserve a card that works for you. Restrictions apply. Offer ends June 30th, 2024. This is Ashley Iconetti from the Ben and Ashley I Almost Famous podcast. The state of Tennessee is one of the few places where the sounds are just as breathtaking as the sights. Whether that's live music at a historic music venue, the crack of an open fire at a campsite in the wilderness, or hearing kids laughing as they explore what's right around the bend, Tennessee just sounds perfect. Start planning your trip at tnvacation.com. Tennessee sounds perfect. Danielle Moody here, host of the Woke AF Daily podcast. We've been with iHeart for a year, and what a year it has been. As we head deeper into 2024 and yet another life-changing election cycle, Woke AF Daily is here to keep you sane and woke. Make Woke AF Daily your podcast destination for 2024 election news and analysis. Listen to Woke AF Daily Season 5 on the iHeart Radio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.